Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Medical Justice, Jeff Siegel. I'm joined today by an old friend, actually. His name is Teddy Gillen, and he's no stranger to this podcast. He's actually been here before. Um, Teddy is a principal of Epic Insurance Brokers and Consultants. I'm going to read his bio right now before I say hello to him. So he leads a team that delivers custom solutions to clients in the healthcare industry. Uh, Teddy says it's never been more important to work with an insurance broker who specializes in healthcare. Amen to that. Shock malpractice verdicts increase, increase class action lawsuits against directors and officers, natural disasters, and daily cyber attacks are driving insurance terms and conditions into an ever-increasing hard market. And on that note, in his spare time, Teddy enjoys rating golf courses with Golf Week magazine as a subsidiary of USA Today. Teddy, it's a pleasure to welcome you back. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dr. Siegel. Now, as I've stated in the past, um, when I make an introduction to somebody who specializes in insurance, I think that the first reaction of the listener is, is hey, look, I was actually going to um, spend the next 30 to 60 minutes engaged in uh, very deep, sophisticated conversations and the bar is set really high. I can't imagine that being accomplished with a discussion of insurance with an insurance broker, but I'm going to counsel everyone to fasten your seatbelts and get ready for yet another great discussion. The first time we had a conversation with Teddy, um, we received a healthy amount of feedback. I think his phone was ringing uh, quite a bit. I expect this time will be no different, particularly given a number of different issues that are taking place in the uh, in the market as we record this. So, uh, Teddy, again, thanks so much for uh, for joining us. I'm going to start with um, what fueled this. Um, I mean, normally we would be talking about professional liability insurance very broadly. When I say that, medical and dental malpractice, um, and, and we will get to that, and we have covered that in the past. But I want to start with another aspect of coverage which addresses healthcare that a lot of people don't think about. One would be cyber insurance. And when we talk about, and by the way, you know, 10 years ago, did anybody even bring up or talk about cyber insurance? No, because there was no perceived risk associated with it. Most of us had, or many of us had paper records uh, in the office and while there were you know systems for for billing um we never really viewed them as items of risk things that could get us in trouble with the government with plaintiffs and require us to pay for lawyers but the world has changed teddy um when you hear about or when you're when your target audience namely doctors think about cyber insurance what what is that what is what are they thinking about what is in their brain when they hear that they need to get some type of cyber insurance and that's a it's a very broad and loaded term but what let's try and get into the average person's head what are they thinking about what is the protection that they're looking for yeah i think uh that's a great question uh, most of the uh, physicians that i talk to uh, physician business owners, they're really thinking about how do they 
protect their email and other uh, phishing or like a phishing scan that might come in from an email where they may click on something that pulls them to the wrong page where they give up some of their data or you know inadvertently pay someone that they shouldn't pay. So they're thinking about it uh, much like most consumers are, um, unless it's a, a large organization that has uh, a risk manager or um, you know someone that's really dedicated in operations to their cybersecurity. Most physicians aren't really thinking about this at all in terms of purchasing coverage, um, but they're certainly hearing about cyber um, out, in the, out in, the, in, the, in the news. So the, they understand that they need to protect their network system from outside intruders, and that also includes unauthorized people within their organization or right. fresh fresh, uh, the freshly newly unemployed, people who were employed and are now disgruntled ex-employees. Um, but there are two components of that. One would be a breach um, of privacy, meaning that somebody with unauthorized uh, access gets into their system. And then number two, that that there can be a disclosure of unauthorized uh, by an unauthorized individual of protected health information, and sometimes this leads to shutting down their their systems. Meaning that there's let me let me back up and restate that one could be a unauthorized disclosure, and then number two would be a destruction of data or holding your data hostage. Those are two sides of the same coin. They're both problems. Uh, but they both create different issues. So, for example, right. if if somebody just if by clicking on a link they say you've got 24 hours to send, you know, X thousands of dollars in bitcoins, or you'll never see your data again, that essentially shuts down the computer aspects of your practice. I mean, if you've got backups, there are ways to get up on board, but by and large, it makes it harder to just continue doing your day-to-day -day business. So that's bucket number one. Bucket number two which can happen from the same fishing episode, is that um, the people who, who, um, who are trying to shut your system down can also say, oh, by the way, we know you've got a lot of sensitive health information from very important people, and we're going to, start, we're going to start disclosing that to the public on our website one by one until you pay us the money. In fact, the longer it takes for you to pay the the higher the price. Every day is a new day, and uh, and there have been very famous episodes of or incidents of plastic surgical clinics. One in particular was in in England, where you know plastic surgeon for the stars had a lot of before and after pictures and very sensitive mm -hmm. situations, and they were um, I think a lot of their information was actually disclosed when they didn't make payment quickly. So two separate things you know one would be just shutting down your business operations which can cause a financial hit number two would be disclosure of the very sensitive information which will then trigger two other problems one would be challenges with the federal law and number two challenges with state law federal law is the office of civil rights health and human services who will have a lot to say about data breaches right uh, but they generally don't um although you can be fined, um, it doesn't turn into money that you're writing checks to patients. But if the right. patient is irritated, 
they can file suit in state court alleging a breach of information. So lots of connections to potentially seeing lawyers with with judgments and penalties and so on and so forth. But so let's dive into that. Yeah, and that's a lot to unpack. Um, but uh, yeah, I think in general, you know, your audience needs to be thinking about cyber not so much as something that can happen to them from just purely digital you know, computer or phone um, breach, but something. Um, it's cyber coverage is, is is sort of the blanket terminology for the network privacy and security uh, breach policy, and that can be um, you know even an employee that has files with PHI that they lose, and these are hard old hard copy files. Or in in my case, I had a, had a client that uh, mailed PHI from one office to another, and um, the package was lost in the mail. So that is that trigger a breach, um, or it can be so much as what you described, which was ransomware attack, where you know your computer or your, your phone is seized by a, a bad actor, and they lock up your data, and you're you're not able to access that data or continue to um, access your your PHI um, unless you pay a ransom, and you know, during that process, you may be completely shut out of your systems. Um, how do you get back up and running? Um, do you have backups in place um, to get back up and running? How do you continue treating patients if you don't have access to their patient files? Um, and then that can also, like you mentioned, trigger a, a business interruption claim, um, which is a, another um, type of exposure that, um, which is essentially, you just can't, if you can't see patients and you can't, um, continue to operate, uh, then you can no longer, um, you know, gain revenue. So you have a business interruption claim in those uh, situations. There was a case recently. I don't know if it's been fully litigated. I read about it in the Wall Street Journal. They said that it was the first reported death where they were suing for um, some type of remedy. I want to say in the deep south because of a ransomware attack where and the OB wing obstetrics wing of a hospital was shut down for a period of time because ransomware um, had taken taken it over and apparently information timely information didn't go from point A to point B quickly enough or a patient a mom expected mom wasn't taken care of quickly enough but ultimately the baby passed away i know i may be bastardizing the details of this but the essential point i'm trying to make is that we generally think of these as privacy issues but this was uh, a case where a ransomware attack bled over causing a patient injury not just a privacy injury but uh, an actual death and they were suing for negligence. Negligence meaning that the processes in place and at the hospital were inadequate and they were negligently inadequate to protect against a foreseeable risk, which is the presence of a, you know, you should have a secure system in place. So information, laboratory, surgery, scheduling, who's on call and so on and so forth is properly in place and people don't have to guess because if you have to guess, 
the amount of time it takes to make this educated guess may not be adequate to keep a patient alive. And so this, I don't think people had thought about a cyber breach triggering a patient death, triggering a medical malpractice lawsuit. And so here you kind of have overlap between a cyber coverage and professional liability coverage, which and, one would expect. Go ahead. Potentially a directors and officers and liability, uh, directors and officers liability coverage as well. Yeah, that's so one of those, but wait, there's more. <laughs> but, but wait, there's, there's more. more. But wait, and there's I'm, more. And depending on your insurance carrier, they could all be fighting to exclude that particular claim. Well, um, here's why I find it interesting and important, because let's assume for the most part that each of the policies you just described have the same policy limits and they have the um, it's the same carrier, so it doesn't matter whether it's a right pocket or left pocket, et cetera. But for many cyber policies that I have seen, they are add-ons delivered by a professional liability carrier to the tune of twenty-five dollars or $50,000 in comparison to the traditional policy, which would be a $1 or $2 million policy. So in the case I just referenced, imagine you've got a, a patient who died. And, you know, if a patient dies, you would definitely want one and two million dollars worth of coverage just to pay for the legal bills of nothing else. But if this turned into nothing more than a primary cyber coverage based on the very low end policy that I'm talking about, 25 to 50 K in limits, I, I can't even imagine that would pay for the legal bills, much less a, a settlement or judgment. You're correct. Those limits are just sort of a throw in and add in that. You know, one carrier in the MedMal space decided to, to provide that as an additional um, coverage for their providers. And then so the other carriers all kind of jumped in, said, oh, well, if they're doing it, we have to do it you know, because it's this is what they're doing. Um, but you're, you're right. The limit is insufficient um, if there is an actual meaningful claim. I mean, according to HIPAA requirements, if you have a breach of data and changing gears from the death claim, but if you have a, a data breach that um, impacts you know, hundreds and thousands of patients, I mean, you have, you're required to notify each one of those patients with first class mail or email, um, which there's a cost of that notification. Um, there's an ongoing cost post notification of, of continuing to um, provide them with some sort of credit monitoring. Uh, and depending on the size of the breach, you know, you, you, you most definitely have to report it to the federal government. You most, you, depending on the state, you may have to report it to a state level. And then you also have to send it to your media outlets um, to let them know, to let everyone know that there has been a breach. Um, and so there's some, there can be some fallout to, um, you know, uh, uh, any a breach of PHI. Um, and it can get real nasty. And, uh, you know, it's uh, if you're if you're a, a smaller to midsize operation, where do you start? I mean, that's the question is, how do you mitigate this once you find out that there's a breach? Well, I think the first step is to see whether your carrier will supply an attorney knowledgeable in the field and will give you great information. And that information would be, hey, guess what? Um, I know you were scratching your head as to whether um, this um this USB drive that got lost in the mail 
is actually considered a breach. But here's the good news. The good news is because you encrypted that USB drive, the likelihood of anybody um, gaining unauthorized access to it is low, in which case it is not reportable. But if you don't know that, um, you know, not having that information and just doing a Google search to pick up on that could put you in harm's way, particularly if, if it turns out that there is a potential likelihood that somebody gained uh, access. Because frequently, uh, and I think this is the correct interpretation, if, if you lose a USB drive, for example, and you know with 100% certainty it is not encrypted and it has protected health information on it, the default assumption, I believe, is that um, that there was a disclosure and that reporting is required. Uh, again, triggering so many different pieces of ugliness to follow. Um, so right. I think getting an attorney on board who are not cheap in the cyberspace <laughs> because they're in such demand, I think would be the first step in terms of analyzing what the obligations are and also what can be done down the road to try and prevent such mischief uh, going forward. Right. Well, and I think you mentioned um, you know, turning in the incident to your carrier so that you can get an attorney involved. And I think the first step really is to purchase the coverage. You know, if you're out here in, in 2022 and you own a physician practice or uh, a, a business that's in the healthcare uh, in space, you're not purchasing cyber coverage. You have a massive liability, potential liability to your balance sheet. I mean, these these claims, as you mentioned, uh, they can be quite expensive, and so you're 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 basically exposing your balance sheet to the potential of a of a cyber breach that could result in massive fines and um, you know and cost of um, you know notifications and then potential losses. So if you have coverage, what's unique about our industry is you you mentioned that no one was talking about this stuff ten years ago, um, and the insurance world is a pretty static place other than a few little segments and cyber is is one of them it's very dynamic so people started talking about it 10 years ago as um, the exposures were you know sort of elevating and every year we see um, this exposure increasing year over year without without slowing down and the demand for the coverage um, is skyrocketing so more and more people um, you know, want to purchase the coverage, and the coverage itself is becoming more and more savvy in terms of responsiveness to the consumers. Because when you go out and purchase this type of coverage, the carriers want to mitigate the potential of a of a you know a, a, a large loss, right? So, oftentimes, depending on the carrier, uh, they may offer uh, data breach uh, consulting services. So you're you can purchase coverage from a carrier that are actually come in pre-claim and help you assess your risk and help you put in the you know the proper procedures in place to you know and and maybe do some phishing emails that that um you know some mock phishing emails that get you trained so there's some training components to make sure that you're protected um, but you you definitely when you're looking and you're analyzing at coverage not all coverage is created equally as you mentioned, some some of the coverage is included with MedMal policies. Other coverage, you know, you can obtain may not have a very broad um, you know, coverages. They may exclude a lot of what you're looking uh, to cover. But you really want to partner with someone that's going to have a data 
data breach response services. So when, when something happens, you're making a phone call and they're dropping in the team, right? They're dropping in the, the, the forensic, uh, the computer forensic folks, the accounting folks, uh, the legal folks, and they're coming in as a unit uh, to try to mitigate any, any potential disasters post, uh, post breach. So Teddy, you're probably going to disabuse me of the premise that twenty-five to $50,000 as a cap for coverage um, it just makes no sense. What, what do you think is a reasonable coverage for a small physician practice to have in terms of limits? I, I think what you're gonna find is the market dictates the limits. And so the traditionally coverage are you, you buy in millions. So uh, yes. you know, the, typically you'll find that, you know, a carrier will say, hey, we'll, we'll give you a million, three million. Um, or a million with a with a you know a million aggregate, and so they kind of start there, and then you know they really look at um, the operations, the size of the operations, the revenues um, of the operation, um, and decide you know whether they would even be willing to offer additional limits on top of that. You know, so if you're a hundred million dollar organization and you're purchasing one million dollars in cyber limits. You're really leaving a lot um, on your, of your balance sheet exposed there, um, you know, in the potential of a of a of a massive loss. Um, and then, so, and really, how many records do you have? You know, the PHI the number of records really drives the, um, you know, the the cost of a of, of a breach. And and we're talking about purely just when, when someone breaches PHI. I mean, there can be other sorts of breaches that you mentioned. Um, someone suing for a, a media. Uh, liability type of uh, lawsuit, or it could be a phishing scam um, where, you know, one of your employees clicks a link and, and makes a payment, you know, to a vendor that really was to someone over in Russia. Um, and so there's all types of, of um, claims that can come from, uh, from a, a cyber uh, coverage claim. I like the whole notion of a policy that will help address or manage some of your risk before you incur that risk. Um, you suggested that some of the carriers do have in place a value add where they can do a broad discussion of how to preempt the problem. So for example, they'll test whether your employees know what phishing is and whether they can avoid clicking on suspicious links. I mean, that, and, and tra train them train them and educate them so that if they are clicking on it, they at least learn what they're doing and hopefully don't do that going forward. I, I would think that the training and risk mitigation would be as valuable as the post-event coverage, you know, after the risk is incurred. Absolutely. So we, you know, we do this within my own firm where we have um, at least once a month, I receive a, a test phishing uh, email and I have with, baked within my Outlook a um, a button there on the email that says report phishing. And uh, I, I've received those test emails and that those emails have made me more aware of actual phishing emails that I have received and I've reported successfully. Um, and then every once in a while, I report one that I, I think is phishing that's just not phishing. Um, and it's just a good exercise for me to be in tune and, and aware of um, 
that this is a potential risk um, within our our industry. And if 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 our IT department didn't create those phishing tests, then I you know I wouldn't be as hyper in tune or aware uh, that the, that this is a potential um, you know thing that could happen to us. So it's yes, often, it's very valuable. It's often stated that the greatest risk for your network is not so much the type of antivirus software you have or what your firewall consists of, it's the training of your people that are clicking on links. That apparently is the greatest risk. Um, Absolutely. Interestingly enough. One of the things that was fascinating to, uh, to me was how the industry appears to be consolidating because as we shopped for cyber coverage, it didn't seem like, at least for our market, the size of uh, our business, that the the number of players that were out there offering cyber coverage is not a gigantic number. It may have been a big number at one point, but it just seems like the numbers that are providing the A-rated coverage that we would be looking for, you know, a company that will be there if we have a problem, it seems like I can count on one hand. Have I just not shopped this appropriately, or is is the has the industry consolidated and there just aren't a gazillion players out there? Yeah, I think there are brokers that have different access to different markets. You have you know markets that are in uh, domestic here, U.S. markets. Um, you have Bermuda markets. You have Lloyd's of London and London markets. So you know, sometimes it can be your access points into the market, but um, to you know, echo what you said, there really is what we call a decreased capacity in the cyber market. So we have carriers that are exiting. Um, you know, they they started to you know provide coverage in this industry, and they it's a bet, right? So they're you're buying insurance from them. It's really for them. They're taking a, a gamble on, um, hey, we're setting a price for this coverage. We're in this industry. We're going to collect the premiums. We're going to invest what we can. We're going to put some reserves to pay claims, and then claims start rolling in, and they got popped, so they're out. <laughs> you know, so yeah. um, I think you're seeing that some some of those carriers that were coming in didn't really understand um, the business real well, um, decided that they needed to exit, and then the others, as you mentioned, the, the ones that have consolidated, have really kind of doubled down in the industry and said, okay, let's take the time to understand this. We need a, a breach response team, crisis response team. Um, what we see there is there's a decreased capacity. So they're, they're, those carriers are really unwilling to, um, if you need more than a million or you need more than you know, 5 million, you know, they're going to say no. Um, and so uh, if, if you're an organization that, that say needs 10 million of coverage, you know, oftentimes what we, how we put that coverage in place is really we'll, we'll go out and have four or five carriers participate and build a, build a tower, if you will, where one carrier is in for a million, uh, the next may have the next three million, uh, and then we build it up from there to accommodate the insurer. Because some of these, you know, obviously if you're a, uh, you know, a hospital system, you, know, you, need, you may be buying $50 million of, of limits uh, in the cyberspace. So there's, there's, a, there's a big need uh, for high limits. It's interesting that that reminds me of how the World Trade Towers were insured, that it wasn't one insurance company, even two insurance companies that covered them. There were many insurance companies that covered them. And the reason we know about that is because they were fighting with each other 
over policy language as to who was going to make payment. They were including things as to whether it was one event or two events. That is, was it one terrorist event or two separate airplane attacks on two separate buildings at two separate times? And I know that sounds crazy that um, that whether payment would be made depended upon the actual language of the contract, but not all these contracts were the same. That is, the language in each contract was somewhat different, whereas some some carriers got hit with paying more right. than others based on the language uh, within the policy doc document. So you can definitely see how there would be a real need to layer in this type of coverage when you're looking for fairly high limits for unusual risk. And what you want, what you want to find if you do layer on is a follow form by the excess carrier. So you buy primary uh, insurance of a million. If another carrier comes in and participates, you would want them to follow the form of the primary carrier so that the language all stayed the same and you don't see um, different exclusions at a, at a two million layer that you, you wouldn't see at the one million layer. Um, but even further, um, most of these carriers are a reason for the restriction of the market. There's fewer markets is because most carriers are, are going out, they're taking your premium dollars, they're looking at what they have in terms of exposure of what they could potentially lose, and then they're going out and purchasing reinsurance. So they're going to another insurance company and, say, and either on an individual account basis, so if it's a large enough risk, they may say, hey, we have XYZ hospital system. We want to come participate on this. Um, but we, you know, we want to offer 10 million in limits, but you know, can you participate in this? So they're kind of they're they're working a deal on the back end with a reinsurer to participate that you may never know exists in the process. Or that reinsurer is looking at their entire portfolio, um, the entire organization, and they're attaching at a at a point of a, you know, let's say a $10 million loss pick. So if if, uh, if, if uh, a carrier has losses of more than $10 million in any given year, it's really a reinsurer that's stepping in and paying anything you know, more than that. So that's how these carriers are thinking about their own risk. And one thing you also want to look at as a, as a buyer is, you know, how long have they been in the market? But, but um, what's their financial rating? I mean, if it's a, if it's a brand new carrier to the market with a, with a, a rating that they're not rated by AM Best, which is AM Best is our sort of gold standard in, in our industry of, of independent third parties that, that review financials and create a rating. Um, if they're not at least A minus by AM Best, um, then you may look a little harder at their financials to determine um, whether you want to uh, purchase the coverage. Sometimes you have to, right? If there's no one else to provide you with uh, a quote or um, the, you know, it's cost prohibitive for you to purchase coverage from another carrier, you have to maybe go with an unrated uh, carrier or a risk retention group or a risk purchasing group of some kind. But um, you definitely want to keep those things in the back of your mind as you're, as you're evaluating your options. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. 
That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N-F-O-N-F-O news at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.